0: the chieftains.
1: them, play them, me. me, on me she pegging the them as far. You'll see the way It's them, little more. the suits, of begging, get Except for of the when she's down. It's so care of me, the team of me, the taking little more. good in a gallop, the team the she's taking little more. It's so care of me. The famous It's been a call and me. She's Peggy, lit and
2: Welcome to The Bottom of the Glass, a podcast about the art of traditional rudimental drumming and music of all origins. The Bottom of the Glass is hosted by Dave Loyal, Brendan Mason, and me, Brian Watkinson. We'll dig deep into the theories, the ideas, and the history of rudimental drumming, fifing, and world music through the words and experiences of those who are making music history today.
3: Recording in progress. Yes, 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 yes. I
4: haven't done that in a while. Well, we just yeah. finished a uh, a pretty good interview uh with Jeff Prospery, um and we're just getting on now. it's it's uh, about 10 twenty at night to do a little bit of banter um before this episode, but man, that was a great interview we just had with Jeff um talking about a whole range of topics we talked about. Uh, his his experience growing up in drum corps, um, his experience in the Hellcats, his experiences in in DCI um, as a DCI judge. It, it was a, a pretty well rounded interview, and, and I think we all enjoyed it.
5: It's a uh, pretty pretty often, um, and cer- certainly in this case, where um, even after we stopped recording, we uh, still you know we're, we're talking about some of the the different elements of stuff. and stuff, and I think that. Um, particularly in this interview, we we still we left a lot of ground still left to cover, um, which we're we're hoping to do in a um, you know in, in the future at some point, whether it's um, it's just having Jeff on again or maybe having a couple um, different people to explore um, a subject or you know some specific element of drumming or of 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 anything really. So um, I think it's going to be really cool.
2: I think so too, you know, when you talk to a guy like Jeff Prospery, who, uh, you know, he's so, uh, he's so well-educated in, in percussion. I mean, you know, doctorates and in, in master's degrees in, in percussion, and he virtually knows just about everything about percussion. And he knows so many people in the percussion world and he knows so much about music that, you can talk to a guy like that time and time again and talk about different things every time around. but you're right, Dave he can he could bring in people that he knows that we know and we could have a roundtable discussion about stuff and talk about all these different levels of, of drumming and percussion and music that uh, could be ongoing. I mean it was a really good it was a really good chat and I, I enjoyed it I'm, I mean I'm actually physically exhausted. After talking to him, you know, I mean, yeah. it's late at night, we've been chatting with him for a long time, and uh, I can hear it in Brendan's voice and your voice, we're all a little tired.
4: Yeah, it's like that late night muster conversation, right?
5: <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's, that's what this whole podcast was founded on.
4: <laughs> and <laughs> nice so before we, we have that, uh, we, we did an, an interview yesterday with uh, Charlie Poole Jr. and Michael Eagle about the upcoming Rhythm Monster project. Um, what are we calling it? The, the Yanks recording or it used to be the pool party, but we had some clarification on that um, during the, the interview, but um, yeah, we are talking about that. That's coming up March 25th in North Adams, Massachusetts. And it's uh, a lot of cool stuff coming out of that.
2: Yeah. That's going to be a lot of fun. And that's, that is open to anyone, everyone, uh, regardless of whether you, play or you don't, or you wanna learn about the Yanks, or you already know about the Yanks, but that's going to be a fun time for anybody who can go. They should go, and it and the music will be great, and the stories and what you learn will be good too, I think, so I'm looking forward to that.
4: Yeah, and before we get to both those interviews, um, I would be best to not mention fact that uh, a really close friend of ours passed away uh over the weekend um yuka from the River rebels and he was in the swiss regimentals before that um he was a an incredible bass drummer and, and i've known him uh since i was a little kid since the first time uh that i met anybody from another country um you know when when they came over to the united states when i was a little guy and, and um uh yeah, just just lost um you know an incredible person, an incredible drummer. Um and it's it's really tough for me to still talk about actually. So
2: You know, it's interesting because I didn't know, I was not aware until he passed how close your family was, Brendan, over the years to him. Um and I saw that just through social media and you know the pictures that you posted and your brother Peter and colin posted and your dad and stuff i wasn't aware of that and so i'm sorry um i'm sorry because it apparently you were you and your family were really close to him so this has got to be kind of difficult
4: yeah you. yeah i i want to leave it with this if that's okay colin wrote something and and um you know it kind of you know meant a lot to me when i read it um but this is what colin wrote uh, you are so much more than a friend, more than family. You are such a massive piece of what makes me the drummer and person I am today. You never were fully willing to accept your place on the Mount Rushmore of rudimental bass drumming, but I guess that's part of what makes you so legendary. Rest easy, Yuke. The next Eddie is for you. He's referring to Edinburgh Castle.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, that's really nice.
4: All right, guys. Well, let's get to these interviews.
2: You got it.
0: Thanks. Still on the march in New London, we hear now one of the Connecticut Yanks' unique arrangements entitled Blarney.
2: We're going to talk today with a couple of very important people. Two guys who have historically and currently have had a huge influence on not only the ancient style of American Fife and drum, but also DCI, marching percussion, all forms. Charlie Poole Jr. is an educator, arranger, instructor, composer. As a drummer, Charlie has won the Connecticut and Northeastern Individual Snare Competitions four times. And he's won the Nationals three times. And of course, he was a member of the legendary Connecticut Yanks Fife and Drum Corps. More on that in just a bit. Our other guest, Michael Eagle, is creating a remarkable resource for all of us in the ancient and modern marching arts. His company, Rhythm Monster, has raised the game on recording, capturing, and preserving forever this art form that we all do in whatever form we do it. Thank you, Michael, for that. There are so many legendary performances that are parts of lore that we only know through by word of mouth. One of those epic cores is the subject of an upcoming project, a collaboration between these two gentlemen that we're going to talk about tonight. Charlie, Michael, thanks for being here. We're looking forward to hearing about this This project that's coming up that sounds like a lot of fun
3: yeah uh, thank you for having us and i'll let michael start and i'll i'll chirp in as we go along
0: uh same sentiment thank you very much fellas um i think i've listened to all of the podcasts so far while doing laundry yard work etc it's one of my go-to's so thank you for the work that you do as well and thanks for having us on
2: well, geez, I'm sorry you've listened to every one of them. That sounds pretty pretty <laughs> grueling to tell
0: you the truth, but hey, uh, to each his own, I guess. No, nah, man, it's the um it's it's what is real, right? Um like uh, uh, the big impetus of why rhythm monster exists and why we do what we do uh, is because of culture. Cuz I've always believed that music begins with culture and to understand the music and the instruments, you have to first understand the people. Mm. And so I, I believe that the work that you guys do is really sharing that all over the world for free you are sharing the culture of fife and drum and honestly it's why it's so good and why it's so beautiful
4: yeah
2: and you know and really and the stuff you do not that you know we'll kind of get into the project in a second but all right
4: guys get a rule
2: i know i know but no it's really important it's 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 really important to acknowledge what rhythm monster is doing you know because we have and there have been some There have been people uh, who have spent a lot of time and spent years trying to document this stuff that we do, but Rhythm Monster has kind of brought this to, like, another level with, uh, you know, full... Full productions with several cameras and different angles and great audio and really, really good, really good video. And this is the stuff that, you know, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, people are going to be able to look back and say, whoa, okay. So so this is what, you know, this is what the Patriots looked like, you know, in, you know, in, you know, 2023 and 2024 and 2025. And it's really, really important. And And I thank you for doing that, Michael. I really do. No, it's, it's, right
4: definitely, it's important work, Michael. And, and, you know, we all appreciate everything that you're doing there with that.
5: It's I a, appreciate that it, it's a fascinating as well, that that's kind of, kind of what we're trying to, um, to recreate here with this, with this project. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. um, we've all seen videos of, of, of the Yanks from, you know, from, from the, from the seventies and, and from when, whenever, but, the quality is okay. Um, some, some is better than others, but can you imagine that the the resource that you're creating is, is putting that out there, um, for, you know, of what's happening now for the future where it's going to actually, people are going to have a a solid resource for that. So can you guys talk a little bit about the, about the project and, uh, and and what's happening?
0: Certainly. So, um, basically uh, Rhythm Monster provides three big things. We provide exposure, education, and experiences in styles of rudimental drumming. You guys have been citing mostly so far the exposure piece. So we travel all over the world recording the best or the most monster drum cores, and we deliver that footage absolutely for free. Uh, The educational resources, when we have people um, create tutors or lessons or rudiment things, whatever, that's what's behind the subscriber wall, and that's typically the stuff that you pay for. The experience piece, you haven't seen too much of that from Rhythm Monster, basically because of COVID. We've done a couple live events here and there that's been very kind of hodgepodge, put together at the last second to try to do what we can do to create something special. And this Yanks event is one of the, pretty pretty much the first opportunity we've had to create an experience for drummers, and to build it from scratch, to work with people that were involved with it, like Charlie Poole, and to work with people that are in the scene of Very Active Now, like Brennan Mason, so we can make it the way it needs to be. Because this whole project started out, I thought it was going to be more centered around just Charlie Poole, but as as it grew very quickly, we came to realize, well, yes, Charlie is a, a center subject here because of his influence because of him as a player, as a teacher, and everything that he's done, but it's also because of the ensemble that him and his family helped create. So it kind of went from what we call the pool party, all of a sudden became uh, the Yanks Project. And so uh, the reason why we chose this path was our our first venture into FIFA drum, other than the Monster Drum Corps series videos, was we did a full-fledged tutor, with Dom Kuchia. And uh, Dave and Brennan, I know both of you guys were at that event. Brian, unfortunately, was snowed in at the time. Uh, But we built a full tutor from, I don't know what a snare drum stick, to be able to play at any muster for snare drum and bass drum taught by Dom Kuchia. And we decided to put a big cherry on top at the end of that by having everyone choose one solo from both of his books and perform all of them. And it was kind of loosey-goosey, but it went over really, really well. It was one of the most memorable drum experiences of my life. And I put out a survey to everyone afterwards and I said, okay, everyone seemed to like that. What do you guys want to do next? And so we put, I don't know, maybe 10 different options of what I've heard fife and drum people talk about. And the resounding majority was we want to do something with Charlie Poole and the Yanks. So I called up Charlie Poole and we were actually working together at the time. Charlie and I were working on writing blogs because Charlie has such a wealth and um, history and music um, and he clearly wanted to share it. So we started working together of Charlie writing blogs and the Rhythm Monster team curating those for him. And then I asked him, do you want to do this wacky project in a little less than a year's time? And he seemed to be game for it. And like I said, it started out with being fairly centered on on Charlie, but but just a few meetings in, it was very clear, no, this needs to be about the Connecticut Yanks. And my last comment on this is, the reason why I really fell in love with this idea was not only the opportunity to get to work more in-depthly with Charlie Poole, but because I've heard this ensemble with almost every conversation I've ever had with any fife and drum person. Someone always references the Yanks and Charlie and the Yanks. And so clearly this is something that still resonates with people today. It wasn't that long ago. And so it was really exciting to dig in and to find out, okay, not only was this a very influential ensemble for a lot of people today, but this was kind of a bridge between the old and the new and charlie Poole is one of those bridges because he was so immersed in uh the american drum studies if you will of the 50s and 60s and then he carried it into fife and drum and of course carried it on to dci so i actually think that this ensemble is going to be very very important for people to discover of of all of all styles of rudimental drumming beginning with fife and drum and then beyond
3: Yeah, from my perspective, the thing that, I guess, shocked and overwhelmed me was the uh, the response uh, when the call went out to uh, <laughs> the ancient Fife and Drum Corps community. It's, it's, it's humbling to me that all of these great uh, ensembles, all these great players are willing to come together and uh, share some of this. Um, yeah, the Yanks were, uh, <laughs> I, I guess, at, at, at that point in time, much of the stuff that I was doing was almost considered to be sacrilegious because it wasn't the sevens and flams and the bass drums, just mimicked the rhythms of the of the stair section. I was doing different things that I had experienced, you know, through my uh, my my experience with the the Boston Crusaders and Jerry Shelmer, who was a Berkeley grad. So I, to to me, the opportunity to be able to work with and to see and meet all of these people that I have been admiring. Because I'm going to be honest with you, I mean, the uh, this is really a heyday for um, the ancient pipe and Drum Corps world in terms of the number of truly wonderfully uh, accomplished uh, corps. Uh, you know, and here and there, some of my, you know, some of the, the, the guys that I marched with still remained active and, uh, you know, some did not. And uh, one of the things that Michael asked me to do, he said, it would really be great if we could get some of the Yanks alumni together, and we have put together a group of seven of us. There are five snare and two bass. uh, And as a matter of fact, uh, Thursday night, we had a Zoom rehearsal. And uh, just to tell you how far all of this goes back, there was a surprise guest that Alan Zimba had found and brought him in, Jeff Hool, who was one of the seven young men that showed up at my father's house in 1961 saying, you know what, we want to compete. We want to, you know, we want you to, you know, lead us to put it, you know, and get a drum corps together. They were former members of the Plainville fight, the drum corps. So just to go all the way back with Jeff Houle and to be able to reflect on, you know, remembering him coming to our house when I was 10 years old, um, you know, that the, the, the Yanks were a part of our family tradition. Um, the first drums were purchased with uh, the family vacation funds, Ooh. and my father Ooh. promised my <laughs> father promised my mother that th- he would get the core going, and they would do Memorial Day parades to be able to re- you know re- re- refuel the, the 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 funds. So, um, you know, even my mom was uh, so involved with it uh, th- through all those years, and of course, my brother was a was an accomplished rudimental bass drummer with the core, and. Uh, What's really encouraging to me is I know Paul Cormier is coming out to visit, you know, at this uh, event. He started me playing and then turned me over to Bob Rennigan. My brother's coming out to, uh, to to see everybody. But we have, you know, people like Marie Hickey, who was probably one of the greatest mm. female snare drummers in the, the history of the state of Connecticut. Uh, coming out, Rick Dolan, uh, Michael Jed, Jim Clark, uh, Donnie Mason, of course. Donnie was the young kid. In that great bass drum line and you know boy i just wish that we had rhythm monster video <laughs> of that group because i will go to my grave saying that those were the greatest four bass drummers to ever walk on this planet they were special and uh gave me the opportunity to do some things uh scoring wise that uh, uh you know mm-hmm. obviously we're going to be able to delve into and what mm-hmm. to me is kind of exciting is that in the project uh, we're gonna play. We're gonna play material that Bob Redding wrote right from the beginning of the core, and kind of transition through some of the more <laughs> elaborate and sophisticated work that we did towards the end. And I guess I'll just wrap up with this. Um, it kind of it, it kind of surprises me that the Yanks are still viewed as having such an important influence. But the one the one time that it came to my mind was about ten years ago. I had tickets for this event. I and and you know it was being done through the uh, uh through the teachers union. They were free tickets to go see this this performance of Spirit of America, the old guard. I go, oh, I know the old guard. So my brother and sister-in-law, gave you know, about five couples. We went out, we went went to the con- went, went to the performance at Boston Garden. And uh halfway through one of the drum solos, my brother turned to me, he said, Man, it sounds like you're writing, Charlie. You know, <laughs> and so at least little bits and pieces of that, you know, of that history have been able to filter down. And and of course, what the groups are doing today is just, you know, they've taken it to, you know, obviously to the next level. So I think it's kind of an an important kind of historical uh, document that we're going to leave behind, a legacy that people will be able to see where, you know, that transition from 1961 to 75, 76. Yeah. Yeah, so really kind of
2: exciting. You know, uh, it we, when we had Jim Clark on the podcast, uh, we asked him about because he wrote he wrote a lot of music for Donnie Mason, and I asked him how liberating was it, how fun was it, how incredible was it for you to be able to write music for uh, a drummer like Donnie Mason, and for you, Charlie, it was probably times four because you had the freedom to write scores for a snare and bass drum line that was epic, way up here. Tell me, how did how did that feel and how was that different from writing a score for say another ensemble?
3: Well, the, the measure of any good arranger in the activity is to always write to the level of your, your players. Sure. And as you're saying, more often than not, that that's restrictive. Yes. You 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 know, and the, the, for me, looking at that group of seven snare drummers and four bass drummers, sky was the limit. If mm. there was anything, I, I always felt as if I was I was challenged to keep challenging them, um, and they were always stepping up and you know knocking it out of the park. I mean, that group could just they could flat out play. And what I really, uh, as we started to compile all this repertoire, I realized that over the last four or five years, we learned a lot of music. It just, it was, it was, it almost had like a momentum of its own. And we were just churning out music. When you would go to a Connecticut Fifers and Drummers Association contest, you'd have to play for a minute and a half so that they could get the time twice. We used to play for three minutes, four minutes. It was almost like, Stick in the eye. You know, you're not going to be able to tick us. We're that good. We could stand here and play for, for 15 minutes. But, you know, to that end, amazing, amazing, because there was nothing that couldn't be written.
0: And Charlie, what year did you guys put out the album?
3: That was, if I'm not mistaken, that was 72. 72.
0: Okay. 72. See, this, guess, this is where we started with this whole thing was, OK, what what music is on the album and and how much of that is part of this influence? And it seems to be like just about every single track on it.
3: Yep. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, there's uh, and even beyond that, um, I mean, the Yanks, as I told, the, <laughs> as I told the game the other night, I said, look, I made sure that we selected the easiest material to play. We'll let all of the young Turks take it from take it through the, the history, the history and, and up to the you know uh, up to the 1976 material. So we're doing Yankee Doodle, we're doing Caledonia, we're doing Jaybird and Fireman's Quick step. But it's I think it'll be interesting to see that was where it was and to see that transition. And actually, I had two stints. When I was a senior in high school, I was teaching the and writing for them. And then when I went to college, um, you know, obviously I couldn't make the rehearsals and I joined the Boston Crusaders. So it was a two year period that I was I I was out and then in 72 came back in. And that's I think I'm pretty sure it was 72 that the that that the album was done.
0: I would imagine most folks listen to this are are more familiar with the album than at least I was before this project. It was really cool for me to compare and contrast the music from the album, um, for which we're recording most of it. And then there are these four or five enormous medleys that are all what we've been calling post-album medleys. And I think we're doing two or three of those as well. Yeah. And just like Charlie keeps saying, the evolution from like the earliest Redigan writings all the way to those last couple medleys of Hillbilly and Louisiana Hay- Hayride, that is an enormous uh, lifetime of music in such a small span of time. It's pretty outstanding.
4: What's, what's also interesting about that is that those later pieces were almost like lore. Nobody heard Mm. them. Nobody can like go back and say, we can find like a great recording of it. It was that record that everybody had a copy of that record. And still many people to this day. I was just talking about that the other day uh, with some members of the Patriots. Your dad, Charlie, if I recall, used to walk down the parade route with records in his hand and he would sell the records on the side of the road. So you got to imagine how many records there must be all over you know, New yeah. England, in addition to everybody that uh, that I knew in Fife and Drum Corps had a Yanks record. It so it's one of those things.
5: Growing up as as well, though, like so so we we had it on tape, on cassette tape, and we wore that tape out. So it was funny when uh, Brendan and you guys found um, found some of the, the the unopened records and we were able to digitize it. Um, It was so it sounded so different to me because I I was used to the worn out, you know, cassette tape sound of things kind of cutting in and out and everything. But but to hear that clean version was so cool.
4: I I had two LPs in my possession when I was a kid. It was Led Zeppelin, Houses of the Holy, and it was the Connecticut Yanks album. And I would start I would come home after high school and I would, you know, turn my lava lamp on and get in the right moment. And uh, and I would listen to those records on repeat. That was like my childhood growing up.
3: My sister-in-law, Karen, brought back a memory. My father was sort of a, he he was a promoter. He was the P.T. Barnum of Ancient Fife and Drum Corps. We used to do firemen's parades, and he'd have the boxes of the albums. We would finish the parade, and then he'd have the corps go into a concert set you know where the you know where the the, the, the firemen would be having their muster and all of their events and everything the core would play for like 15 20 minutes and he'd have the color guard going around hawking albums you know so you know yeah, lord knows where those they, they found some hands that i'm sure didn't expect to have them in you know? them.
0: that is excellent so what we're what we're making like what the result is of all of this is on one hand there's just the event itself and i want everyone to know that this is an open event it's not ticketed it's not just for the performers this experience we're trying to create is kind of somewhere in between a live concert and an album recording we're finding we're kind of finding the space in between so we have food and beverages and and other things out there for people to just walking around and enjoy and one after another groups rotate in between the warm-up area and then the stage where we record all the videos. So we're recording two different types of videos. One's just a straight up what we call internally just performance videos. It's each ensemble playing it down on instruments, top to bottom, and everyone typically gets a couple takes, whatever they need. And we're also going to do a series of what we call pad lab recordings. Pad lab is this really cool software that we created at Rhythm Monster that allows you to oscillate between camera angles. You can click and drag and zoom on the score. You can click and highlight slow down the tempo. It's basically the ultimate learning tool. So what we're creating at the end of the day is the most ideal videos that we can that we can create at the time of today's performers playing all the, the Yanks classic music with really great videos, and then also pad lab videos where you can learn the snare and the bass music along with all the performers as well.
2: And with the pad lab, and that is uh, where you can follow along with the score uh, on right. the bottom third, As as it's as it's getting performed. Right. Well
0: that that what you're talking about, Brian. That's just our regular performance videos. A lot of time we put music at the bottom. So that's just the regular performance. No, what we're talking about is this whole internal platform that we have where you can click between two or three different camera angles on your own. Oh. You've got the sheet music right there and you can click and drag and isolate a phrase, adjust the tempo, change the view. It's basically any, it allows you to see and hear anything you want to be able to learn the music. Because a lot of players, like pro-level players, if you will, they'll be able to just sight read through a lot of these videos, and that'll be a lot of fun for advanced players. But I, I often think that, that drummers, that we tend to make the bar of entry too high. So we wanted to make it easier for any style of drummer at any level to learn some of this classic Yankees, uh, uh, Yanks uh, music. So what we did is create the software called PadLab, and that's one of the ways that we're going to allow that by recording it in a very particular way. You're going to be there, Brian? Then you could see it in action. You're going to be there yeah, this time? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, we were just talking
2: about that before, before okay, you good. guys came on. I was like, okay, we got to figure this out.
3: We get so we're, getting the snow, we're getting the snowstorm out of the way. Now. I know. The, that's exactly right. Are. The
0: snowstorm is getting out of the way. Brian, I tell you what, man, that last one we did, there were a couple people that that definitely had dangerous drives to get there. <laughs> and you were you were the one and only person that couldn't make it. And when you sent me that pic of your driveway, I said, OK, five hours plus that driveway. We forgive them. But you're still going to lay down that bass solo for us sometime, OK? Yeah, I will. I will. Awesome. I will. Awesome. <laughs> I still got it. That's good. Cool. That's good. Um, you know it's
2: it's interesting and I, I you know and I kind of think about this and I, I I see what what rhythm monster does and how you how you how you capture what you capture and and how you do capture it and I think about I think about you know those recordings of the yanks from the 70s and you know that w- that one in particular where that those beautiful bass swings are going over uh, everybody's head just just perfectly that yeah, downshare recording. Yeah, 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 downshare. And and it's and it's gorgeous, but it's short, and it's tough, and it's grainy, and the like, and, you know, and I think about, well, what if, you know, what if we captured, you know, the regimentals from, you know, a decade before that? And what if we had captured, you know, a decade mm-hmm. before that with Landcraft, mm-hmm. with, you know, you know, Quigley, and, you know, Francher, and whoever else was around, like, you know, before that, but... But you're going to be able to capture, moving forward, all of this terrific stuff from cores that we haven't even seen yet, you know, cores that we haven't even discovered that are going to kind of blow us away. And that's going to be captured forever. And uh, Mm -hmm. I'm really psyched about it. And I think it's important as hell. Um, So this is part of the beginning of all that and, you know, Mm -hmm. taking the past to the future.
0: And I'm really excited about it. So. It's going to be I'm, a really cool project. I'm so happy to hear you say things like that, Brian, because, you know, I, I think for from my perspective, because I, I grew up playing fife and drum music, but not in fife and drum culture. So I played through all the Pratt, all the Wilcoxon, some of the classic muster scores because they're all taught in every single university. You can't be a percussion major and not know some of this stuff. Right. But I I... It was a while, like I was in DCI until I started hearing about Charlie Poole, and it was only recently, like in the past five years, that I'd heard about the Yanks, and I think that the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of other drummers that are like me, they went through high school, um, college, marching band, they went to school for drumming, maybe they marched DCI, WGI, etc., and went on to other things in life, I don't think they had the opportunity to really dig into the culture of Fife and drum and find this gem that is Charlie Poole's music and the in the Connecticut Yanks. So I really think that, yes, this is gonna be a beautiful preservation of this ensemble and its music, but I also think that this might be the gateway drug for someone over there to come over here, if you will.
3: Yeah, I agree. I do agree. To your point, uh, if I had one wish, it would be to have seen the Sons of Liberty when Bob mm. and Hugh Quigley, and the two Arsenal brothers went mm. to New York and for one year they played <laughs> with with Parks and Bobby Thompson and Eric Perlo. I mean, that would have been for me because I, you know, I knew those mm-hmm. guys and I heard Bob talking about them and their contests and all of that. So, you know, anything that we can do in terms of it's almost kind of like a retro. Uh, mm-hmm. retrofitting mm-hmm. of the past and you know the thing that's to me is just incredible since there's going to be all of these you know it's going to be a congregation of the greatest ancient fife and, and drummers you know on the planet which should, you know to me for me I haven't met all of them and I look forward to that opportunity and to thank them for you know taking this on because I to me it's, it's pretty remarkable
2: yeah
5: so, Mike, how many groups are signed up to, to, to come up and, uh, and and
0: record? Goodness, well, let's let's look at the current tally here. Let me pull up one of my sheets. So, some of the some of the groups are like Brendan's group, the Connecticut Patriots, and some of them are playing not not the entire ensemble. And some of these ensembles are coming together just to play this this piece or music or medley for this project. So, currently. Uh, What we have on the roster is we have got the uh, the Rough Riders and the Kuchia family band. They're actually going to play the uh, the opening of the album. Over there, the Yanks are coming, followed by Hoedown. We also have the Troublemakers Fife and Drum Corps, which is Mark Beecher's group from Philadelphia. Mark has been a a huge um, source of information because he was there with those reel-to-reels recording some of those videos you guys have cited from the Yanks back in the day. So it's so cool that Mark and some of his guys are coming over from Philly. We, of course, have Brendan Mason and the Connecticut Patriots. We also have uh, Josh Salazar and his Connecticut Blues. We have Jim Clark's Connecticut Valley Field Music. We have, of course, the Connecticut Yanks Alumni. Core. We also have the Fort Meyer Fife and Drum Corps, uh, and then we have a uh, an all star, a couple all star cores, if you will, uh, just a complete ra- random, you know, entourage of really excellent players who wanted to come together and play a few more pieces. And oh my goodness, I forgot one. We are bringing together the 2012 Company of Fife and Drummers Junior Campers. To play blarney as that was the piece that they learned back then so we're bringing as many of those guys back together as we can to play blarney and i think i think that's it so we're we're hoping as far as performers it's going to be uh between 75 and 100 folks i think as far as just attendees i have no idea but it's again it's very very important i want people to know that anyone and everyone is welcome to be a part of this at it costs nothing, it's gonna be a good time.
4: And and the setup of a live recording is is really mm. special. It, it reminds me mm-hmm. of I don't know if you're familiar with those Starky Puppy recordings. Oh my goodness, yes. Live. It, it, you know, it's it's mm-hmm. everything but that, except for nobody has headphones on, it's just like a live concert setting. Right. And, and it's pretty, pretty cool, man, because you have people hyping you up and saying, Hey, you know, that mm-hmm. wasn't so bad that take.
0: That's exactly
4: that's exactly right.
0: Even if it's take three, we do the same announcement, the same claps, and yeah, we'll get the good one. That's right. It's interesting that you mention that, Brennan Mason, because um Rhythm Monster's uh, first foray into concert percussion has been a partnership with Mark Wessels. Mark Wessels, who's written some of the most sold drum books of all time, and he's the director of education for Vic and Zildjian. He played a huge part at creating those live experiences on behalf of Zildjian and Vic Firth. Huge influence for myself and so many other guys and gals on the Rhythm Monster team. So I, I honestly think that that's yet another thing that Mark Wessels has created that helped pave the path for this event we're going to do here in a couple weeks time.
4: Yeah, it was definitely memorable. It was fun. I mean, it went on Mm -hmm. a little late, but it was, it was, and I think we're working through the details of the schedule. That's going to make it a, you know, a lot more feasible for folks that want to just come up there for the day.
0: For sure. Yeah. The Dom book shoot. Yeah. That was all day on Saturday because uh, again, I didn't really know what to expect. And, We were just having so much fun. And before you knew it, like, you and me were the last two players. It was almost, I don't know, 10, 11 o'clock at night. So – we had to hurry up. That's not going to happen this time. We're hoping to start around 10 a.m. And if we succeed in doing so, we'll have all the shooting done by around four o'clock, at which point there might be some other surprise musical guests. And uh, we, of course, can muster because the uh, the studio we have at Beaver Mill, we have 24-7. Carte Blanche can do whatever we want there. So if we want to stay and muster, we can. Providing the weather's good, there'll probably be some other opportunities to go outside and barbecue and do some other things around town. We have, we have a lot lot. lot of fun in store for folks that are coming up to see see the shoot and to stay there after so uh so michael and charlie just give us the
2: um again give us the date give us the time give us the place just so that folks jumping in right now can uh get that info
0: cool well the the first thing you want is the the website that has all this information and that's rhythm-monster.com slash C.T. Yanks. So that's got all the info that I'm about to recite. And so it's going to it's gonna be in North Adams, Massachusetts. It's going to be at uh, my studio that's called the Studio at Beaver Mill. So if you just Google the Studio at Beaver Mill, boom, there's the address. And it's in North Adams, Massachusetts. So it's going to be about a two, three hour drive on any of these beautiful roads in New England for anyone up here. Uh, we're hoping to again start at 10 a.m. And, and conclude the recording around four. And the way we're going to do this is we're going to do all the instrument performances first, take a quick break, and then do all the pad lab performances. While all that's going on, there'll be plenty of food, Plenty of drink, plenty of other things around going on. It's not a quiet environment. People are welcome to just hang out in the back of the studio while recording is going on. And this is, of course, on Saturday, March 25th. I keep forgetting to say that. So, yeah, <laughs> Saturday, March 25th in North Adams, Massachusetts. That's where uh, the Yanks gig is going to be going down. Did I miss anything, Charlie? I bet you
3: got it all. I figured, you know, let you, let, let you get it. You'd have it more accurate than I would.
0: Hope so, by this point.
2: <laughs> well, it sounds like a hell of a time. Sounds like a hell of a time and it sounds like something everyone should go to.
3: It'll be fun. It will be fun. And yeah. um, as I say, I mean, I'm just as excited as anyone just for the opportunity to meet everybody and uh, for us to be able to, uh, and as, as I said to Michael, I said, for all of those Yanks who are there, I said, I want one great group picture. When, oh, yes. You got yeah, one yeah. more once, you know, because um, it was just such a special, you know, any great performing group, I don't care whether it's a, a sports team, whether it's it's a musical, uh, musical group or in our activity, competitive group, chemistry is everything. And that group had it in spades. They were just a, a phenomenal group of people who happened to be together doing that same thing and uh, created some pretty special moments.
5: Yeah, we're all, we're all really looking forward to it. I, I'm I'm excited myself. We're um we're we're bringing the kids up, and uh, it's 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 going to be a really good time. We're looking forward to to
0: seeing everybody. Sounds good with me. <laughs> uh, so, if people are interested in what the uh, lodging situation is. Um, the, the studio beaver mills about 4,000 square feet. So if anyone wants to drum core it in the studio, you're certainly welcome to that Saturday night, bring a sleeping bag and a pillow and you've got a place. Otherwise there are plenty of, um, smaller hotels that are very inexpensive. There's plenty of Airbnbs within 10, 20 miles of North Adams. There are plenty of lodging situations and I really want to encourage everyone to stay that Saturday night so you can just relax and enjoy the day with us.
4: All right, thank you guys. This has been great. And, thank you. Uh, we hope to see you all
0: that day. Well, dude, thanks so much, fellas. Thank you. Really appreciate it. New cadet, what's for breakfast?
5: Sergeant, for breakfast, we are having
1: scrambled eggs, sausage links, assorted cereals, and orange juice. Are there a battle monument?
6: army name
2: seasons here at the Bottom of the Glass podcast, we have covered a lot of ground in the fife and drum, DCI, marching percussion, and world music genres. We have interviewed fifers. We have interviewed all kinds of percussionists, event organizers, instructors, clinicians, anyone who has affected, influenced, or enhanced our common love of organized ensemble performance in the ancient, modern in marching percussion worlds. Primarily, uh, Dave Brendan and I have had the privilege of interviewing some of the finest rudimental drummers alive today, as we will do today. Master Sergeant Jeff Prospery joined the West Point Band's Hellcats in December of 2006, and currently serves as both the section leader and principal drummer of the percussion section. Master Sergeant Prospery is a world snare drum champion, and the first and only individual to capture the triple crown of solo competition through DCI, PAS, and DCA. Master Sergeant Prospery is a 2018 inductee into the World Drum Corps Hall of Fame and a 2014 inductee into the Louisiana, Mississippi Percussion Circuit Hall of Fame. Jeff is a frequent finalist judge for both DCI in WGI World Championships. As a performing artist, he is endorsed by Pearl, Sabian, Innovative Percussion, Evans, and Loyal Drums. I could spend the rest of the week talking about Jeff's contributions and accolades. He's a valuable asset to our craft. He's an asset to our hobby and to our community. Master Sergeant, thank you for your service, number one. And number two, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast
7: wow thank you <laughs> um, that, that was that was wonderfully done uh I'm, it's a pleasure to be here i've I've enjoyed and laughed along and laughed with you guys and learned so many things last couple of years listening to your podcasts and listening to so many of my friends and heroes here so I'm just thrilled to be
5: here thanks for having me Awesome. to see you, Jeff. Thank you very much for being on.
7: Yeah,
4: thanks, Jeff. It's been a long time coming. Yeah.
2: Long time coming for sure. Well, let me jump right into the first question. Um, So you're the group leader of the Hellcats. Your drumming accomplishments over your career are extensive and they're impressive. But I know very little about your early years and what brought you into drumming. As a youngster, who influenced you to move toward drumming? How old were you when it happened? Uh, what was it that made you gravitate toward this art form Uh, and what brought it all about
7: when you were young? Well, um, sure. So I grew up in South Louisiana in Thibodeau, which for those of you that may have seen the show Swamp People, where they Mm -hmm. catch all the alligators, like that's Mm -hmm. actually the same exact area where I grew up. So when when I watched that show on TV, I noticed all the landmarks like, oh yeah, there's the boat launch, there's the gas station. So that's where I was, so um, not necessarily a hotbed of rudimental drumming like you guys have in Connecticut, but um, but we do have Mardi Gras. So I went to a Mardi Gras parade. You know, ever since I was a little kid, and the thing that I enjoyed the most about Mardi Gras was the drums coming down the street. I could hear them getting closer and closer and closer, and then when they finally got to you, you could feel the drums, and then they would leave. So I thought, man, I'm going to do that. I'm going to join the band. And my only goal was to march in a mardi gras parade so that was pretty much it and then after i joined the band um the high school i was at was pretty competitive and there was a strong influence down there from marty hurley who lived in new orleans which was just 40 miles away so the teacher that was teaching our drum line had been taught by marty hurley and uh, so i learned that technique which is really the bobby thompson technique which is very connecticut so marty had gone down to Biloxi, and when he was in the Air Force, he was stationed down there, and then he got hired by some drum corps in New Orleans to start teaching, then he just stayed in the area. So he's influenced the whole area. You think about John Wooten, uh, myself, Scott Jamison, Jack Bounds, who was our recent hire that we're hiring for the Hellcats, like all that Southern rudimental tradition. Stanton Moore is in that that classification too. We were all taught indirectly by Marty Hurley. So join the marching band, And then um, would come in and out of relationships with Marty Hurley through honor band auditions. He was usually the judge for Allstate. And we would talk a lot in the audition. And he would give me like a mini lesson in the audition, which was really cool. And he would say, hey, you should should come up the Phantom Regiment and march Phantom. I said, no, I'm going to the Bridgman. I really enjoyed the Bridgman. They were kind of crazy. And um, so he goes, oh, you'll end up at the regiment one day. So I did march in the Bridgman, but eventually he was right. I did wind up at the Phantom Regiment and, and was fortunate enough to march there, but then teach alongside O'Marty for quite a while. a little bit about how I got started but through the process of snare drumming and rudimental drumming I grew to love m- many other things orchestral percussion, marimba drum set, you know world percussion, teaching at a college that sort of thing so it was a springboard for a lot of experiences and then I've come full circle and now I'm playing snare drum again.
5: Nice. So um, I-, I have some questions about the um, about your early years with this. So um, first of all w- were you you just decided to do this on your own or, or did, did you come, like, did your family have um, a background in, in either, you know, drum core or uh, music in general? Like, like, was it around growing up? Um, I would say, no,
7: there really wasn't a musical background. My mom had played a little bit of piano and I could hear her play the piano in the house and, Mm -hmm. and um, every now and then, and she played clarinet, but it wasn't anything serious. Um, I think I got a lot of, um, just get up and go and make things happen for yourself. For my dad, he, he's, he's still alive. He's a doctor. He was, he was retired, but he grew up really dirt poor and worked in the offshore oil rigs and put himself through medical school and became a doctor. So he's kind of like the American success story. Um, you know, so he, his attitude was always like, if you want something to happen, then you got to make it happen. So I, you know, yeah.
5: Yeah. Well, so it, it, it's interesting that you were talking about like, a, you know, growing up in like a, essentially like the swamp people kind of environment. Uh, you're an avid sportsman, hunter and outdoorsy kind of guy all around. Um, so like a, as a kid was, um, it sounds like drumming really became a laser focus for you, but, but you were also surrounded by, um, by, you know, all those other kind, kinds of activities as well. You, you just texted us a video of you making a, making some, uh, some, some white bean soup and singing Cajun, Cajun poems. Is that what I was <laughs> Right. Yeah. So, you know, like, and anybody that, that knows you knows, knows that about you, you know, the, the, the food and the cooking and, and hunting and, and all of that kind of stuff. Right.
7: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I enjoy, um, trying to get my own food and process it and prepare it. And, Just even the art of bow hunting is very much like percussion, where you have to develop these techniques and hone your skills Mm -hmm. and have consistency and and discipline. And then when the moment of truth comes, you have to deliver the goods, which all of us know as performers, when you get up on that stage, especially when you get up on that stage by yourself for a clinic or something, you know, you have to trust your training and deliver the goods in the the moment. So I I like that process. Um, It's very satisfying to to have a meal to know that you know everything about that meal and where that meal came from. But um, yeah, that was kind of some of my upbringing. Yeah. Cool. So Tony Shasheries or Zatarans? <laughs> I like Tony Shasheries, but I really go for the more, the homegrown little ma and paw cans of um, seasonings that you get like at certain markets around my, my hometown. And I buy all those and then um, mix them all together. So I probably, when I cook today, I probably use like twelve different cans of soup. <laughs>
4: yeah, yeah, yeah.
7: Tony's is a go-to. You can never go wrong with Tony's.
4: Yeah, yeah.
7: So yeah, when I you mean,
2: cook, I, I, go ahead. When sure, you Brian. cook, do you do you do you cook it the same way every time, or with when you use that many ingredients, does it always come out differently?
7: Oh, it comes out differently, but there's nuances. You know, you're always trying. It's just like drumming. You know, you you can perform a certain piece, and then on a certain day, you might have a different nuance, you might go a little hot on that accent or pull away from that phrase yeah. usually do. But yeah. that's the fun of it. Um is making those those choices in the moment.
4: <laughs> Good. I like it. So Jeff, I want to hear more about Marty Hurley. And and I asked the same question to John. I, I don't know much about Marty Marty except for, you know, you came from that lineage and John came from that lineage. And and as you said before, Stanton Moore and and, and many others. And it's and it was such a hotbed of that, that style of drumming down in Louisiana that came from the you know the Northeast. So, you know, what was his influence on your style of drumming, your your writing, your pedagogy, all of that? Uh, and, and how how has that brought you into the percussionist that you are today?
7: Well, um, when you think about Marty, you just think about excellence and integrity and work ethic and just the no-shortcut approach, just the discipline. So, when you played for Marty, I, um, he would really listen to you and there was no bullshit. He was going to tell you exactly what, what you're doing and, and uh, you got to have a little thick skin. And, but he, he could demonstrate it right back to you and then he could break it down into certain exercises. So, long story short, I was never really going to march with the Phantom Regiment. Uh, I was going to go to the Blue Devils in 86. I had marched in the Bridgman the star of indiana and i was ready to go to a, another level and in star of indiana in 86 we had beat the phantom regiment in 85 85 was a, a lower placement year for phantom marty was not there so they decided hey in 87 we got to bring marty back and and so um i was going to go to the blue devils but marty was going to have a little camp in new orleans before the real camp for phantom so that kids wouldn't waste their time driving all the way up there and all my lsu buddies were like hey Come to New Orleans where I was living in Baton Rouge at LSU. Marty's giving a little camp. I was like, eh, I'm not marching with Phantom. We beat those guys in starving Yeah. <laughs> and why would I go to a core that might not even make finals? Um, so my friends were like, well, just come play for him. So I went to the camp, which was at Brother Martin High School, and Marty knew exactly what button to press. He could read everybody and, and know what to do. So I was just there just to kind of drum for the weekend and blow blow through some chops and. But Marty called me into his office. He, he left the rehearsal and pulled me out, and he says, so I hear you want to win individuals, which was one of my goals. I wanted to win individuals. I said, yeah, I want to win individuals, and I was probably a little arrogant at the time, um, and so he goes, okay, well, let me see you play some stuff. He watched me play, and I think he could immediately point out like something that I probably could not play well. So he went to the back of his filing cabinet, went way back there, pulled out a sheet, Blew the dust off it. It looked like he hadn't gone to that sheet in a while. And he goes, here, play this. And I still remember what it was. It was like a Swiss thing with these spaces. (laughs) With kicks coming off. But it was fast. He kept taking it faster. And he figured out that um, my left hand needed to go. And I was trying to stroke it all. I don't know. But he he pinpointed what I could not do. That in-between bouncing, stroking. And um, and then he wrapped it out fast, blew me away. And he goes, "Well, you got a lot of work to do if you think you're going to win individuals." Here, take this back, and next time you come back, be able to play it. <laughs> First of all, I had no intention of ever going back to the next camp because I was going to Blue Devils, and I was like, "Oh man, this guy just called, he just, he just called me out." And then I noticed everybody on the staff—John Wooten, Holly Gary, and, and Marty—I noticed they all could play really well. And Holly had just won individuals at PASIC and he had come out second to Stevie Campbell who had won with a 100 and people don't know it but Holly had like a 99.5 or whatever it was so anyway these instructors could instruct and they they could really pinpoint each person what they needed to work on and I left that camp blown away with the level of playing from the instructors and the the teaching level but now I was like man now I have to come back and be able to play this sheet down for Marty because he basically called me out on it. So I went back to that next camp and then I kept going back. And then I said, you know what? I don't care what place this core places, if we make finals or not or whatever, um, I'm going to learn a lot from these guys. And this is this is the group I want to be with, and we were all Louisiana. We had eleven snares that year, and eight of us were from Louisiana, so it was a raging Cajun snare line. We brought Tony Chachere on tour and sprinkled <laughs> on our food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One day we we got in the food truck and we made red beans and rice for the whole core, so yeah. it was a, it was a blast. And um, and ironically, we had a Cinderella year. The core was like potentially um going to win finals that year. We were like third or fourth somewhere there, and we wound up coming out third in drums and beating the Blue Devils that year, which was that's the core. So it was a Cinderella story and it all worked out. And then I just stayed there then my next year and then started teaching with Marty after I aged out.
4: Yeah. That's a lot of life, life lessons in that one story there for sure. You yeah. know, yeah. you know, going the educational route and, and, and sticking with it with your homegrown guys and, you know, and you may not have been the best drummers compared to the talent they were getting over at Blue Devils, but you were able to somehow, you know, overcome that with commonality. And, and that's that's an awesome story.
7: Yeah, everyone in that line, you know, Troy, bro, myself, so many great drummers um, are, went on to be successful musicians, educators, performers. And so, you know, the the Bridgemen, when you marched that year in 84,
4: that was like the Bridgemen were known as like that wild kind of group from that time. What was it like to march in the Bridgeman? Was it that crazy? Was it a lot different than some
7: of the other DCI experiences that you had? It was crazy. Um, I didn't have any other DCI experiences yet, but I was only 17. And, um, and they had won drums like three years in a row. They were a dynasty. And then the year before I marched, they were like third in drums. And I think we were fourth in drums the year I marched um, in prelims. The court did not make finals. So when I got there, in my mind... I'm thinking like this is like an, I had done a lot of like all state honor bands and I'd been in that sort of thing where, you know, you have an itinerary and you go to the hotel and the chaperones are there. It was nothing like that. It was, you know, grown ass people that excuse my language, but, um, you know, men with hairy chest and beards and, and little 17 year old me. and And the only thing we cared about was playing really, really well. And the group had a good time and they partied a lot, which I wasn't used to. And um, so it was it was a lot of growing up and, and just seeing the world for what it was. Um, yeah. Because I was I grew up in a pretty sheltered, you know, went to a private Catholic school in Louisiana. And I think the Bridgman appealed to me because they were a little more radical. And I, you know, I, I wanted to um, experience that. And um, I got that out of my system. And then, you know, when I, by the time I went to Phantom Regiment, uh, Marty was right. The Phantom Regiment was a great place for me to call home in the end because it fit my personality but yeah the Bridgman was um they were they were just so intense and Pat Petrillo was my snare instructor yeah and he was just an incredible drummer and to this day I study drum set lessons with Pat Petrillo oh you still do yeah I do and our lives have um interwoven many times when I was at UL Lafayette I was a percussion professor and I brought him in as the guest artist for one of our concerts and you know we've done clinics together at PASIC, and uh, so I can't say enough wonderful things about Pat Patrillo. But he was an incredible snare drummer. And I'm, he, I'm, digging uh, his, uh,
4: I'm digging his. I'm uh, digging his <clears throat> how it was played video series that he's doing. Yeah. he's going back to these classic charts, and I think he just did uh, Rock Steady by Aretha Franklin. Like, and this is how it was actually played on the record, and he plays it, and it's and it's really good. And he also went out to uh, to do some recording at Abbey Road, right?
7: He did a couple of years ago. and Then he just came out with his um, CD release uh, recently, the Pat Petrillo Big Rhythm Band Power Station Sessions. And it's really great. It actually was number one on on a certain jazz chart. I'm not sure which one it was. And Pat's having a a great time right now. He was on the cover of Modern Drummer Magazine. I know. It's awesome. So, um, yeah, great, great things for Pat and uh, super talented. He's another one of those guys that just makes things happen. Like, I admire people that just – they have an idea, and then you, you, they tell you, and about a, two years later, you know, they're, they're doing it, you know. So um, Pat's one of those guys for sure. That's really fascinating. That's
2: really cool. Um, moving in another direction. So we're uh, all familiar with your, your snare drum chops, but having a doctorate uh, and a master's in percussion, you probably on one level or another play – a multitude of different percussion instruments. So if you wanted people who are familiar with your snare chops, if you wanted those people to know and understand about your ability on another percussion instrument,
7: what would that be? Well, before I came to the Hellcats, I mean, I was doing a lot of orchestral music. I was the principal percussion in the Baton Rouge Symphony. And I had done a lot of that in college too. Did the PAS um, orchestral snare drum competition, and I won the, the orchestral snare drum competition. Um, the year before that, I won the rudimental. I mean, the marching one. And then um, the year after that, and the next two years after that, uh, well, the year after that, I won the mock symphony audition for pacing. So that was I was headed down the orchestral road. Um, subbed a little bit with the Dallas Symphony and played in several orchestras around the Dallas area. So um, that was my thing for a long time. And then I really got into marimba. And then studied with Lee Howard Stevens and went to his summer seminar, the month-long thing. And then Lee was on faculty, um, guest faculty at University of North Texas when I was working on my doctorate. So playing for Lee Stevens was awesome. And um, I would say since the pandemic, I've taken a deep dive into drum set. So that's what I want to, I'm starting to see that I'm going to be retiring in three and a half years. So that's awesome. And then I'm asking myself, what do I want to do? And then the pandemic came along and I said, you know, I always really wanted to get better at drum set. I did drum set in college at North Texas and got through the curriculum, but it was, um, you know, I was at the time, I was the captain head for Phantom and I was playing orchestra. It's always split my energy. I never could devote a tremendous amount of time to drum set. It was more survivability of drum set and then competent enough to play gigs. I was at that level. So Took a deep dive, called up Papatrillo, started studying with him. And I even joined Drumeo, like, you know, online resources, Stanton Morris Drum Academy, doing that. So um, started playing at, at the church that I go to there. They have a great music thing, and it's super professional. They send you the files. You got the in-ear monitors and the clicks, and, you know, you, we don't even rehearse. You just show up and lay it down. So um, it's, I've been doing that. And so, I'm, you know, i got kind of a three-year, four-year plan to get good at drum set and so when I move back down to New Orleans I can add that to my uh, bag of tricks in addition to the orchestral stuff and um rudimental stuff.
2: Is there is there a particular area uh uh and type of music on drum set that you're focusing on? Is it is it jazz?
7: Is it is it rock? Um, yeah. I would say right now is um funk and soul. I run, like this week I've been digging into all the fat back beats with um James Brown. Like well, the popcorn, cold sweat—I got a feeling. Um, funky drummer. Those are the four I'm really looking at. Uh, but I'm really trying to evolve into the New Orleans funk thing. So um, I have a plan for that. But that's that's a whole another thing. Playing in between the cracks with the meters and it's in floor. your soul, though.
4: You got that. It that's, is. That's, it that's is. in Your
7: blood. You know what to do. I listen to it all the time, and yeah. I'm mucking around with it on the drum set. But um, I got to. Um, you know, I'm gonna. I'm gonna dig into that but i'm kind of trying to start at the beginning of funk and then as they branched out into new orleans and the west coast parliament funkadelic sly and the family stone like i'm trying to do like the timeline thing and 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 then branch off so i'm not i have time i'm not getting ahead of myself and i'm I'm just trying to make it feel good and feel right but that's the plan
5: so Um, we've been talking a lot about, about, about all the the different multitude of experiences that, that, that you had, um, you know, growing up and, and in school and in DCI and drum corps and all that. Um, but so you joined the army, um, after, after a lot of this, a a fairly late in life, um, you know, for as far as people joining the military, I, I think you were 38. Is that correct? When, when you joined,
7: I
6: turned 40 at basic training.
5: Yeah, yeah, okay. But yeah, so like, <laughs> you, wow, you actually can't even do that anymore. So I think what the, the, the cutoff now is what, like 32 or something like that.
7: Yeah, it always was. You cannot turn 35 before you went to basic. And it, it was even like that before I joined. But then in 2006, the Army's recruitment numbers were so low that yeah. they were like, hey, we got to get some people in. So they raised it to 42 briefly. Coincidentally, mm-hmm. the Hellcats had an opening. Uh, I was looking for a job where I wasn't teaching all day at the college and gigging all night. Cause I was missing all the family stuff that was going on. My daughter, you know, panel recitals, dance recitals, all that stuff. And I'm, I'm gigging every Easter and Christmas because I have to, yeah. I, can't give, I couldn't give up gigging and I couldn't give up the day job. And so um, one of my friends that I went to grad school with was in, is in the West Point band. He was telling me about, what a great lifestyle it is! So I was like, oh, that's that's cool. I should have checked into it, but I'm too old. But then, like the next couple of days after I saw him at pacey they raised the age. Of, so um, and I, and the packets were due like three days later, you know. so, I, but it was all stuff that I had taught, like drum corps and parade and all these things. And I and I had I had Tiffany sold those work. But see, the interesting thing about the Hellcat audition, which is different than the old guard audition is that we are expected to be able to play with the concert band on concert percussion in a pinch. So on that audition was like keyboard percussion. I think I did a vibraphone solo, um, you know, excerpts, um, timpani, drum set, all that stuff. So I just went, I snuck into my studio like at two in the morning so my students wouldn't catch wind to what I was doing. And I just laid down a packet and sent it in and then I got invited. So then I won the audition and um, I was still supposed to judge DCI A couple of months later so i asked if i could have a delayed entry program i won the audition in april but didn't go into basic training until the week after the dci finals in august and then i turned 40 at the um basic training and i'm 56 now so i've been in for like uh yeah 16 and a half years
5: yeah so like do you think that that, like, so had that seed been planted earlier in your, like, within your career? Like, had you ever considered it earlier on?
7: No, I really had some misinformation about the Army. I never considered it. Um, in fact, because I had done so many orchestral auditions, like Chicago Symphony, I mean, I had done at least 10 or 12 major professional auditions. In my mind, like, the people who were in the Army Bands were not good enough to win an audition. I, I don't know where I got that from. That's not true. The people I play with every day are world class musicians, and they're the very people that the next week they would have won in New York's field, but they happen to win this one first, you know, like they're that level. So I had misinformation, and I never really pushed it with my heart that uh, but if I had to do it all over again, I would have looked into it way earlier because we have some wonderfully trained musicians in the Army, in the Army bands, um, West Point, Hellcats. Um, the old guard, the, the premier special bands in the army and, and the Romeo bands, the regular bands also. So I, I haven't met a poor musician. I don't think ever since I've been in this job. So uh, I can't say enough about the quality. You know, we have so many overqualified musicians in the world, not enough jobs And the army. The army is the largest, well, the military is the largest employee of musicians and Disney, I think is second.
6: Hmm.
2: Interesting. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because my, My dad was a musician. He had a, he played in a little band and he played uh, saxophone, clarinet, and keyboard. And he was like, you know, his whole thing was, look, if you can play one of those basic instruments, if you can play bass, if you can play keyboard, you will, if you can play drums, you will never be out of work. If you're good, you will never be out of work because there's always a call for that, which kind of brings me to my next question because he He rehearsed a lot uh, in my house when I was growing up, you know, he was wailing on his saxophone, playing his clarinet, I was playing, you know, my bass drum in the ancient style and, and rehearsing, my sisters were all, you know, playing fifes in the house, and my mother was going nuts, right, so like, it's like, Jesus Christ, let's stop, right, but I'm thinking it was probably the same way in your house, with you rehearsing, Jeff Jr. rehearsing, your daughter who you said, you know, played piano. Uh, so so what was it like in your house when your kids were growing up and everybody was rehearsing? Was there any animosity from any parts of the family or was it all good and loud and cool?
7: That's really an interesting question. Um, I hadn't thought about that in a while. Um, my wife is a great clarinetist. Yeah. And also got her music degree from the University of North Texas and played in the wind ensemble there. So anybody that knows anything knows the level you have to be in to be in that group. And she was also coincidentally the drum major at the mm-hmm. University of North Texas. And, you know, drum majors and center snares, they don't always get along. But her center snare was um, Jeff Queen. So if you know Jeff Queen, <laughs> the, the great snare drummer. And um, so I guess they had, they had it out where Jeff Queen said, hey, you need to look at my feet. and then she said you need to look at my hands for time and she told me that story i said well that's simple you should have looked at his feet (laughs) Ah, we're gonna have to
4: ask him whenever we have jeff on that that, we have to remember
7: that so anyway so she taught she would be in one room teaching my daughter clarinet lessons who my daughter was an all-state clarinetist and was in the army all american band as well and she was also an all-state choral person she sang in the choir so she was doing the chorus thing and the clarinet thing i'd be in the in the room with a practice pad with my son jeff michael I have 5 kids those are in my third son he played trumpet but he really was in the sports and he happens to actually be tall and, and athletic so he was like the number seven receiver in the state of new york he graduated high school and he's playing college football now so those are the three oldest ones and then we have two younger ones um And they're still, they're 14 and 11. So it's one girl, four boys, ages 23, 21, 19, 14, and 11. So after my first two kids, um, I I don't know. I I have a a mixed reaction about teaching my kids music because I'm afraid they're going to fall in love with it and want to do it for a career. And I don't think it's a good career choice all the time. (laughs) I I think it's only for a few people that really, really want to do it because they just don't want to do anything else like they you know i was trying to tell my son that when he started getting serious i was like you know there's a lot of things you can do in this world you don't you can always play music for the fun of it but to try to make it a career is difficult it's very difficult um so my my remaining two sons are both into sports they've taken after their their older brother and um, i'm just i'm fine with that as long as they learn the same things that i learned in drum corps which is teamwork camaraderie The process of excellence, the process of consistency, all those things that you have to learn in some sort of an organization um, to be good, to be excellent. And music can teach you that, but certainly I think you can gain that from sports as well.
4: Yeah, so Jeff, I am going to go to the DCI part of this a little bit. In, in, In WGI, the judging aspect of your life. Uh, I think that you're widely considered to be the best judge that's out there today, and you may agree with that or not, but that that's for for another debate. What is it that makes you so genuine? Your judge, judging tapes are so passionate; they're so um, exciting to listen to. And I knew, whenever I was teaching a group, no matter what the level of the group was, we were going to get your best on that night. So, I, as a as a teacher, I always appreciated that. So what is it about your judging style that, that sets you apart, you know, that may be a little bit unique than something that's that's, else, that's out there?
7: Well, I appreciate that, Brendan. Um, I think the seeds were planted early for me with judging on what the role model looked like, because I remember in the Bridgman listening and getting excited when Rodney Goodhart would be our judge. So that's a great name of a drummer that you guys probably all know about Rodney Goodhart. He was in the um, Air Force drum corps with all those famous drummers um, so we would get excited about Rodney Goodhart because he could he was very reactionary and he kind of let you know if you were having a good run or not and um, and then that was when I was marching but then when I was teaching the other seed that was planted was the great Charlie Poole he was judging DCI and I was super excited whenever he would judge because I knew <clears throat> excuse me he would hear things accurately and get excited if the kids would play and he would use phrases like i remember um <laughs> two of them in particular uh one of them i, I guess i could say it on here but um, one of them was like snares that was tighter than a gnats ass tighter than a gnats ass <laughs> that was one what he said <clears throat> and then one time we had a big roll <laughs> it was at that sweet tempo where you know it's going to be clean and it was so fat and he's like my god snare drummers I could drive a Mack truck through those diddles. You know, so, <laughs> so, you know, that, that makes you laugh and it gets, you get appreciate. You know, you can feel that appreciation from the judge. So I really wanted to do that. And then when I was teaching Phantom, I was frustrated because sometimes we would get like a tape that sounded great. Like, oh, we played great, great comments. And so you're expecting a certain number. Yeah, yeah. And, and then, like, you know, you're still slotted where you were three nights ago and nothing changed. And then you go and critique. And so I always wanted to know why. Why? Why did you do what you did? Just tell me why. And I could never okay. get those answers sometimes. So my judging philosophy is I want to embody what Rodney Goodhart and Charlie Poole and, and Alan Christensen, too. Alan Christensen is a great judge. And also um, be able to say why. Like, this is why I made that decision through the criteria of the sheets. Now, you may not agree with me how I weighted something, and we can have that discussion and critique and I hope that we do and i can I can potentially change my mind and my position but um but yeah, just I want you to know why and i I hope to have the percussion knowledge to be able to evaluate everything well too, and just um remember that I think that the the tape should be able to be played for the performers you know. environmentally challenging surface for sure. Yeah, watch the last fiddle before the release of the tomboys as you change the environmental shifts on that mold. I feel with a delicate touch facing backwards, then the color shifts. Beautiful press textures, well executed, a sense of musicality. physical demand, intense environmental demand. You, you have like a, a story
4: of like, that maybe you can tell this or not, of like a really, you know, hot staff that came in there that just was like looking to, to throw punches at a number. Have you ever a
7: story like that? I do have a story. And since it's been so much time <laughs> past decades, I think all the participants, I don't think they would mind if I use their names or not. Um, all right. <laughs> it, it had to be Okay, let me just say this: in around two thousand two, two thousand three, two thousand four, I was really starting to get you know a lot of big shows and stuff, and um, and of course Santa Clara was great with Jim Casella, especially the Shahrazad year two thousand four. I judged finals, and that was incredible. Mm-hmm. But I think it was about a year, maybe before that or two. And Colin McNutt was over there teaching the Glassman, and and they were. And I just went, I showed up to some show in the middle of nowhere. I was, you know, I'm just going to judge the show. I want to say it was like in Carolina or somewhere. And Glassman come on and I'm like, damn, they're really good. And they played well and they were doing all this cool stuff. So I probably, Is that the, the djembe
4: year? When they had yeah. The, yeah, hell yeah. All right. Okay. <laughs> that, that was the djembe year. Was
7: that 2003, 2002? 2002, I think. Okay, that sounds. I, like-
4: I'm a nerd, I guess. <laughs> yeah.
7: So they were great, and they were had all these sounds. They had the little Jim Bay mounted on the drum, and <laughs> the roll quality was there. Everything was there. So I was like, "Damn, I have to give them a number that potentially could win drums tonight." And they went on early because the chord wasn't like a high placing chord. And then Santa Clara came on, and everyone's you know, oh, Santa Clara's here; they're gonna win. But they didn't have it. They didn't have a good night. And um, so I was like, hey, I can't, I cannot, I got to put the glassman over to Vanguard. And I don't think that ever happened before. <laughs> so, um, so, of course, Colin comes in to critique first. He's like, thanks, Jeff, for recognizing, you know, glad you called it the way you saw it. And so he's, I'm getting the pat on the back, but I know what's coming. <laughs> you know what's coming. Jim mm-hmm. Casella comes in. He's like, you know, Jeff, I got a lot of respect for you, but, but come on. I, I really... He's like, I know you're trying to make a name for yourself. Yeah, we use whatever lines he was using to get in my head. And I love Jim Cazell. Uh, there is a strategy to critique, and we all play the game a little bit. But he's like, but come on now. The Glassman beating the Santa Clara Vanguard. And, and I was like, hey, Jim, did you watch Glassman tonight? He's like, no. I said, well, if you would have watched him. I think you would have agreed with me. <laughs> that's it, but t- tomorrow's a new day, and I'm sure you guys, um, you know, you'll have a, you'll have a good night, and we'll see what happens. But that, that's a that's one of those early memorable stories because you know you're trying to build confidence as a judge, and right. you know, you're in a very highly competitive situation with super passionate people, and um, the intensity is real. And I had a few um, heated debates with like Neil Arvey and Tom Monks through the days, and sure and, they were gonna yeah. Yeah, they're really, and in the end, you know, it's awesome that people are passionate about drumming. That's all I can say. And and I have a job to do, and I, I don't really care who wins or who doesn't win. I'm just trying to filter the criteria through the sheet. And when I keep saying that, like, it's not really what Jeff Prospery likes. I'm hired to view this performance through the criteria of the sheet that all the instructors have agreed upon. And that criteria changes sometimes. Right now, you know, Simultaneous responsibility, environmental demands, you know, physical demands. But the pendulum swings and, and sometimes we value things. I've, I've been around long enough to know that what we value sometimes changes, you know.
4: And, and the groups are just so clean now and they are just so good so early that it's really hard to make those decisions and make those calls. I just remember, though, it, it was more about, you know, getting a positive tape at the end of the year. And and being able to have the kids listen to it and say, you know, it doesn't matter what the final number was, but it was more about this is what you did to the crowd, this is what you did to the judge that night. And I think that's that's even more important than any number. Yeah, and also just the trust
7: player to player. Like you've got an elbow buddy. I used to say used to call it that in the back. The guy on the side of you, the girl on the side of you, like just developing that. Consistency night to night, and the camaraderie, and trusting that that person's going to do what they're going to do, and you're going to do the right thing. And and these days, the kids are so educated and talented that because of technology, like my son's in the fan regiment this year, and uh, you know they had every weekly, they have these online lessons or video assignments that they have to do, and we didn't have any of that back in the day.
2: Right, right. So getting back to your judging in a very specific way would you consider yourself to be a tough judge, a forgiving judge? Do you cut people slack? Do you let go of a tick? I don't even know if you call them ticks anymore. I haven't been in competition for so long, but I mean, where are you on that scale? Are you a hard ass?
7: Well, I'll say this. Um, I've noticed this in other judges and now I noticed it in myself this weekend. Um, The older you get, and the more that you judge, and the more you truly understand the national standard, and then when you go to a region of the country, and you bring that national standard to that competition, and if you're older and experienced, I find my numbers have been getting lower, Mm -hmm. and if you want to say I'm a hard ass, then you can say that, I try to do it in an educational positive way, but I take the responsibility of the national standard more and more seriously because I judge groups of this regional that are also going to go to championships in Dayton. And if I pop them in 82, which, you know, you starting to see those numbers and I have to realize there's several weeks to go in the season. And is that 82 going to hold up when there's 25 world-class groups and they're all, you know, an eighty to an eighty-four right now. Well, things are going to spread out a little bit when you have all those groups and not enough numbers. So, I don't like to pop too high of a number this time of the year. Could I give? I think it gives a false confidence or impression. And then they go to championships and they get, oh man, we we dropped six points. And um, so. I, I, I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I do find the older I get and I've noticed it, I've been noticing it for years with older judges that I respect. They're always the lowest numbers on the panel. Yeah. <laughs> and the younger, the younger, newer judges seem to be higher. Yeah, I think, I think I was higher when I was younger and newer, but now I understand the importance of the national standard. It does
2: answer my question, and it it, it, it prompts a follow-up question based on what you just said, have you ever had somebody get in your face about your score?
7: Um, I think people have gotten a lot smarter in, about how to run critiques. I think we're kind of beyond that. I think that happened a lot in the 70s and 80s where it was very, very confrontational, maybe in the 90s and early 2000s. But um, I think the smartest thing you can do in critique, if you want a better number for me, is explain to me what I did not credit enough because that's usually my opening line. Hey, did you get a chance to listen to the evaluation? What concerns or comments do you have? How can I give you more credit? What did I not weigh enough? What did I miss? And then they proceed to tell me. And anyone knows me in critique, I got a notebook and I'm I'm writing down all that stuff. And usually I saw them in prelims and I'm going to see them again in finals. You know, the next day and I was like, okay, I am going to look to see if all that stuff's there. And if you nail it, you're going to get credit for that. And so mm-hmm. it's really about, you know, I'm a human being. I can only digest and bring in so much stuff. I may have been talking about the symbols, and then there was some cool marimba thing that was going on that I missed that they had been working for two weeks on, and the writer was so happy that what he came up with. And so you, you have to um, – we need help. And so if you run want to run a great critique, tell me what I need to do. Just, just spoon-feed me what I need to recognize because I will be there. Um, the greatest – One of the greatest um, things i got from a judge, there used to be a judge named, um, I'm going to forget his name, Chuck King. His name was Chuck King. He was judging in the um, the 90s and early 2000s. And I was struggling as a new judge. Like, you know, you you think about it all the time when you first start judging because you're trying to develop your philosophy. And he could see that I was troubled. And um, he came up to me, he's like, he goes, Jeff, he goes, Judging. He goes, I'm like the weatherman. I don't create the weather. I just report the weather. (laughs) And when he told me that, I was so liberated. I was like, you know what? I'm going to report the weather. And Mm -hmm. if I don't get it all, then the staffs can tell me, like, hey, you didn't get this and this. And then I'm going to go back and report the weather again.
5: Mm -hmm. So you you know it, it it's interesting that there's been so many decades um, within drum corps where I don't even know if if it's appropriate to say um, that it's it's progressed as in gotten better because I, I think that at a lot of these different different um, stages of it I mean it's it's been at an extremely high level it's just that tastes possibly change and things like that. Um, Brennan makes fun of me for, uh, for always asking the same question, but I find a lot of importance in it. I'm going to phrase it a little bit differently for you. Um, But I like to ask about, about where you see the evolution of the activity going. Um, But for you, I'm going to frame it to say, um, where does drum, the drum corps style of drumming, um, not necessarily the activity itself, but the style of drumming, where does it have room to grow?
7: Yeah. Um, Before I answer that, I want to just say one more thing about the previous thing we were talking about. You know, as a judge, um, besides evaluating through the criteria of the sheet through that lens, um, we are trained as judges to embody one of three roles or a combination, and that is teacher, counselor, critic. So your younger groups that are struggling, you're like a teacher. You're trying to help them. Like, hey, you might want to try this. And then a counselor is groups that are doing it pretty well, but they you might need some um, counseling to the staff or to the kids, like this is, you know, how to think about this. Okay. And then the highest groups, the world-class groups, you're not teaching them really. You're not even counseling them. You're you're a critic. So you're deciphering fine delineations of excellence and innovation. So I just wanted to throw that out there because that, that really helped me out too besides the weather reporter concept. and For sure. Yeah. So to answer your question, what I've, I've noticed um, – yeah, this could be a really long answer. I'm going to try to make it brief because I've thought about this for decades. <clears throat> if you think about drum chord in the early days, of course, you know, we'll say Ralph Hardiman, Tom Float, Marty Hurley, that that era, 70s and 80s, where they were playing different styles of music and they were putting rudiments that accompany that. They were melodic, you know, kind of like marching band Sousa, but then. Through the late 80s, mid-80s, late 80s, the percussion ensemble idea started to come into play. You think Tom Hannum, 1987 Cadets, Appalachian Spring. It became all about the ensemble. And then Jim Campbell came along and it became more about the world percussion influence, tabla rhythms and, and all of that. So now my point is we had percussionists that were teaching in the 70s that maybe didn't necessarily have a music degree or had studied music. They were products of drum corps. And they were passing along the excellence of drum corps, but now we have percussion education. You got the Paul Rennicks of the world, um, and name, you know, whoever else you want to think about that that have a um, a percussion education. They know they know marimba pieces, they know timpani pieces. They played Elliot Carter's March with metric modulations, and so they can take those metric modulations and superimpose them over the bar line and and the pulse. Because these days the tempos are so fast that rudiments certain rudiments don't work at those tempos unless you do metric modulations and i've thought often about the 15 stroke roll in rudimental drumming and how that is a weird thing to teach to someone because it's not quantized and one and two and one and two and so you're superimposing like all these beats in a count and a half and um you know it when you get it and it feels right but to quantize so that's really like a it, it, it's a metric modulation. That roll speed works. You know, you can't play sextuplets, don't, or don't, and the two e and a whoop. So it's in between 16 notes and sextuplets is a five lit. So that idea in rudimental drumming of using that quintuplet based roll on the 305-1 is it fits a certain speed. And I'm seeing, well, I've been seeing for years now, people superimposing roll speeds over the bar line that aren't to the meter. They might play a five against three, whatever. So you see that in things like egg beaters even. Um, so, and I think that comes from um, education of percussion, um, playing Tiffany pieces, uh, Elliot Carter's, um, has a lot of metric modulations and that sorts of things. So the more educated we are, we, we understand how to manipulate speeds, hand speeds through metric modulations and and the, the last layer we've been adding now is electronics. So I think we're still trying to figure that thing out. I judged this past weekend in Mississippi, and most of the groups had not figured it out. It was just so loud that, you know, we're blowing through things, and you can't hear what you need to hear. So we're losing nuance and touch on all the instruments because we're trying to compete for sonic space with the speakers. So I think we're still trying to figure out the electronics. Some groups obviously have, like the Bluecoats, I mean, they and the... And the cavaliers other groups you know the, the, so anyway that's that's kind of where we're at we can play any speed we want now because we understand the math and the musicality and we're trying to draw in all the world percussion and also um innovations with electronics
5: cool very cool
4: hey so jeff you've played snare drum at such a high level for for so long you know the triple crown winning all that stuff and, and even till today Um, You're certainly one of my heroes in snare drumming. Now, I found myself having to change the way that I've had to used to play, you know, so I used to play pretty low and tight and and holding on a certain way. And now I play a little bit more back of the grip and whatever. Have you found yourself having to make any major adjustments from the way that you played, you know, uh, till now? I mean, is there anything that you you've had to change to, you know,
7: make it as easy as it used to be? I think it's always an evolution and always thinking about how I'm playing. But um, I was fortunate enough to have a good foundation with through Marty Hurley and then the Bridgman. Um, we, I marched when Mylar and Kevlar through that transition. I think I was the first person to win individuals at DCI with the Kevlar head. And um, so we in the Phantom Regiment we did not experience any injury like there was a lot of drum lines when the kevlar head came out if you were like downstrokey and wristy and um not um, distributing the impact and weight and function between all the joints the fingers wrist forearm and i think if you were isolating things you were getting tendonitis and I, i remember in 87 88 when we had the kevlar head for the first time Um, We were still playing like how we played with the Phantom Regiment, which used a little bit of arm. And Mm -hmm. so we were able to disperse the the tension. Um, There was some adjustment. I feel like with the Cavalier head, we had to throw the stick at the drum and then not try to hold it down. Like, we had to get out of the way. And I think people started writing differently. Like, in the 80s, we had things like, boom, 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 sextuplets. But once the Kevlar head came around, we had these bouncy, <honk noise> that was all two, three combination versus. So we voiced that, the accents in the basement. So I think the way we started writing in the vocabulary, egg beaters, uh, more floaty type rhythms and bounce strokes and not holding down, you know, accent and sex toughness thing, radima cues, things where you got to really hold things down that started to go away. So, um, yeah, I did evolve through that time period of understanding how to use the bounce to your advantage. And I wrote my individual solo kind of like that. Like, if you go on YouTube and watch the, um, when I played a DCA, like the the whole first part of that was these egg beater configurations where I'm using all these bouncy rhythms. And that was the opening of my individual solo because I wanted to show the possibilities of the head and, and exploit it and use it to our advantage instead of just trying to play like we always played on plastic. Right, uh, right. Yeah, so I would say even now, like I'm, the thing I'm exploring now, because I'm doing so much drum set, I'm really thinking about like flow and, and space and, and what I'm doing in between my strokes. And I'm finding myself going further and further back to my pinky on the right hand and using like more leverage, yep. like, a, like a timpani grip. Um, for certain things, I, I still believe like in the front fulcrum when I got to bear down and just yeah, go yeah. for it. Like, and I don't, I'm not afraid to say, you know, I'm not one of these guys who say, oh, you got to be so relaxed all the time. You got to be so relaxed. No, sometimes you got to bear down and squeeze a stick and go. You, yeah. know, you have to do that if you want to play that kind of a lick. Yes, I'm going to try to stay relaxed. But the reality is physics. And, you know, I got to have fulcrum strength in that thumb right here. and behind my thumb in the right hand, that, that muscle. It's got to be hard as a rock. And I and you know so I gotta have strength up front in my fingers, but if it's not a taxing lick, I'm, I'm finding myself um, using more leverage and more of an open grip lately.
4: And you and you talk a lot about breathing too, and and that's something that I'm also
7: very interested to.
4: I and mean, that that comes obviously from the orchestral side of things, but it relates a lot to the rope tension kind of phrasing of things. That breath that's supposed to happen when you switched, you know, not switched over, but when you were playing on a rope drum a little bit more regularly. Was there an adjustment there as well?
7: Um, I don't think so. I'm gonna I'm gonna say this and I hope it doesn't come out the wrong way. Um, this is an, an observation on the fife and drum community. Um, so I grew up in Louisiana and I um, would read the Connecticut halftime out of a book and the downfall of Paris and the three camps and did it, it was what it was, didn't make any sense to me. I mean, I just played it as a solo ensemble thing in seventh grade. But because my background was orchestral, I've always taken the approach that an instrument will only get so loud and then it starts to distort. So if you think about a timpani, that's the greatest example of a demonstration instrument. I, I hit the drum to the student and then at some point in time it starts to splat and then the harmonics of the instrument compete with one another and start getting an uglier sound. And I still believe that on every instrument drum set And I still believe beating spots matter and all that stuff. So I think I really approach rudimental rope tension field drum like that. And I think that I sound a little different than someone who grew up in the fife and drum community. Because what I've seen in the fife and drum community, and don't take this the wrong way, but you guys are so strong and you play with such a powerful sound that that is that's the that's the sound that's the sound you guys want that's the sound you guys like but when i went to my first muster experience oh, <laughs> um, i was a little taken aback like why are you playing that hard because the drum already maxed out like a long time ago so i don't know why you're hitting the drum harder well he, he, here, here's what you're missing is that what we found is that at some
4: point, we're gonna find that extra level, we're just still searching for <laughs>
7: <laughs> it. Well, I think the more you drink, the more you drink, you start to find it. You know, like you're 12 beers in, you're like, Yeah, I gotta yeah. get the
4: You know, it, it's so. funny that you said that because you know, we all we grew up, you know, playing that way, right? And so when I first started teaching. And I had a drum line. I was creating like these individual little monsters that could never, ever play together because they all played their own thick, heavy sound quality, what they thought was what I wanted. And so it was always a difficult task trying to get that blending to happen. Um, yeah. So I didn't realize it at the time. But, but but as I've gotten older, I realized, you know, maybe we don't have to max this thing out. It does max out at a certain end.
7: <laughs> it does. And I think you get the prettiest sound, the best sound. When you when you're approaching when that drum's about to distort, yeah. and, then, and then when it does, you can use that as a color. Like if you truly want that sound, that's another color, and that's a shade of a color. And um, what I've been so I I feel like I've never played as hard or as heavy as someone who grew up in the Fife and drum corps activity. I don't believe it's because I can't. I just believe it's a choice. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, so I've, I've battled with that for in my mind for ever since I moved up here, and and I I would I I would say that we in the Hellcats are all more or less orchestral players that subscribe to that same concept, and also our group is so small we can't overpower, <laughs> you know. Um, right. So we, we play with oftentimes we play with a very soft touch because we're in a venue and it's like two piccolos and two snares, you know. Mm-hmm. So I I don't know where I'm going with all that except that. Um, I, I understand and respect the tradition. Um, I come at it from a different perspective and an observation, and I make a choice to use that color sparingly. And um, I think one example, I, I played a while back this um, Pratt Swiss solo, uh, Tribute to Dr. Berger. Mm-hmm. I did it for pacing, and it's on YouTube. If you just punch it in there, you'll find it. But um, I tried to go like as low as I could and as high as I could. And I use that color a little bit like I was really ramping and playing all out and um, I like it I mean I like the color but it's just not my go-to sound right yeah
2: no i I get exactly what you're talking about and I have been in the past guilty of that myself playing uh big bass drums and uh tending to play them on the on the top end probably a little too loud and I can recognize when that drum has lost its lost its thing. And there, and a lot of it depends on, you know, the climate and the weather and, and where you are at that particular point. I mean, that, that changes a lot of stuff with a, you know, a 30 or 32 inch, you know, calfskin drum. Um, but, you know, I've, I've, I've found that most, most drummers, and particularly in, in, you know, what I know in, in playing bass drums is most drummers play plenty loud, but they need to find how to play, plenty soft and that's where that's where the difference comes in you know that's where it's like okay keep it here but when you play soft get it down here so you have that range and and it's all and it's all beautiful yeah
7: good ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry no you're good go ahead with your thought I was gonna say um one time we brought Jim Clark out to the Hellcats because I, I, I thought it was important that we we you know we're the only remaining field music group in the army. And I, I would say we we're probably the first, you know, George Washington established the West Point Band with a Pfeiffer and a drummer um, when he established West Point. So it's the oldest continuing drum job that there is. And I, I felt like the type of people that we hired in the Hellcats, were hiring, you know, here's this trumpet player from Juilliard. Here's another one from Eastman, here's, and they they never came up to the, and some of them had never been in a marching band, okay and so i'm like we got to get like jim clark in here pete emmerich and we got to just listen to these guys talk and um and it it was really nice and but we brought jim clark out to the um lunch formation where we play a certain set of tunes and the core of cadets forms up for accountability then we march him in and um we have really good musicians and we play like gary Owen and all these things and um Jim Clark was just smiling the whole time and like, I was like, what do you think? He goes, it was just so pleasing to hear c- good quality musicians playing with a beautiful sound and in lyricism, interpretation. And, um, you know, you guys just, it was just so refined and pristine. And I, and I thought that was a nice compliment. And I, I thought that was the bridging of the worlds of these types of people that we're getting, but yet, trying to do the tradition, and I know that sounded much different as well as it should than maybe in a muster, which is more, of, I think, a folk community thing, like let's get the kids in, they're playing with their uncles and their grandpas, and let's get people in, and let's have a good time, and we're going to celebrate, you know, this subculture that we have through music, which is very much like what we do in Louisiana with a jambalaya festival, a gumbo festival, a crawfish fest—we're playing Zydeco and people are playing, banging on triangles and tambourines and stuff, and it's just a way of getting a community together. But you know, on the flip side, if you if you got a barometer, you're, you're you know calibrating. Like I think we at West Point and the Hellcats represent maybe a refined approach to field music, but I also want us to know and and, and go to our roots with field music too. So it's one of my goals as the group leader to eventually bring the group to like a Westbrook muster or a deep river and let's, let's play and let's rub shoulders with the community and, and see what we can learn and, and, and share, you know. That would be fabulous,
2: that would be great. You know, speaking of kids, uh, I saw you and your son Jeff at, at PASIC perform and it was really phenomenal. You guys were, were great, um, really great. And I'm not just blowing smoke up your ass on that, really great. When Jeff was young and beginning to find an affinity with drumming, did you instruct him or did you find uh, instructors or people to teach him? Did you do it yourself or did you uh, farm
7: that out, so to speak? So he kind of started in sixth grade and he was just doing the band thing. And I was just teaching a match script and we were doing like just the basic band stuff, doing a little honor band trials, and he was successful with that. But then um, I went to this Civil War Museum, I mean, a Civil War summer like seminar, music seminar with a colleague of mine, where it's where you go and you sleep in tents and you wear the period stuff and you do the calls. And I met some people there. I met Pete Emmerich there. I met a Gerard Cartesi and his wife. Um, and I met Jason Maines. So I met some guys and as a father-son thing, my son, he was little, I could send you a picture of this. It's so cute. Um he was like in maybe seventh grade and he had never played traditional grip in his life. And, uh, but I brought my little rope drum and uh, we set up the tent. And then the, the, the guys there were like, Hey kid, you want a drum? And I'm like, yeah, hey, he's, he's never played traditional grip. Oh, getting, so next thing I know, I turn around, they're already suiting them up in like in a, a union, <laughs> union, you know, army, which which being from the south, I had to take issue with. I was like, oh, OK, can the <laughs> 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 um, so anyway, and then they they put him. And so I walked up to him and I was like, hey, son, here's your quick lesson on how to hold the stick. Because you got to get out there and play with it. He he could already drum really well, master grip, and he had, of course seen me play it a million times. But I just here's my simple approach to teaching the left hand grip. I said, "Here, son, take your left hand. Pretend like you're going over to the creek, and you're going to scoop up a little handful of water. Okay, there's your grip. Now just open up the ring finger and slide that stick in, and then slide it into the behind the thumb. If you can, maybe curve the thumb up a little bit to get, and then push that ring finger. I mean the pinky into the ring finger and um, don't be over rotated already. When you go up to a doorknob, you don't go up to a doorknob like this and try to turn it. You go up with your thumb on top or over a little bit. And then I put the stick in his hand. I said, just turn your wrist like this. Actually, you're really turning your arm. You're rotating your arm. And then um, I said, give that a couple of shots. And he, he did it and he, he picked it up right away. I was like, okay, that's traditional grip. Mm-hmm. So he learned traditional grip that one day. Wow, And he looked pretty good the whole weekend when they were learning all the calls. And, and so I said, okay, well, he's kind of ready to be in the the drum traditional world of rudimental drumming. So then I got in touch with Dominic Kachia because they run that organization, the young colonials, which is like Mm -hmm. 45 minutes from my house, maybe a little more. And then we signed him up. And then every Friday night I drove him out there and I, I sat in the car. I went as a parent. I didn't want to be, drum guy or anything Uh, i mean i did observe like the whole culture and the technique and and um and i had a revelation when i was there but i'll share with that but basically dominic Kachia and gus Kachia were teaching him in the young colonials and i was just the dad driving them out there but my first impression when i watched those guys practice was you had one instructor i think dominic or was in a gymnasium and these kids are um, marching around just playing their parade stuff over and over and over and over. And then at one at a time, they would pull a kid out and that kid would go to the library and the other instructor sitting there with a pad and they're passing them off and teaching them how to break down the rudiment. And they got a checklist, you know, like you can become a Sergeant or a private based on whatever, you know, tunes you check off and they give them a little rank. So it was kind of a really cool incentive thing. And, um, so he was being taught that way. And, and then it reminded me of my first year in the Phantom Regiment, where John Wooten would be running the ensemble and Marty would be on the back of the truck with a rubber pad or just drumming on the truck, actually the big equipment truck. And he would start out with one guy, pulling one guy out. And then he would drum through the whole show with you, you and Marty. And he would tell you everything you need to work on. And then he was like, all right, well, go get the next guy. And then it was your turn and you know, go, go out there. And we did that the whole summer. And um, and I never could figure out like, it wasn't playing the game. Like I saw the other cores, you know, they're like three, six, nine, 12, and they're cleaning everything. And they're cleaning, cleaning, cleaning. And we weren't getting really any cleaner that for a couple of weeks. But Marty was fixing each person and giving them individual instruction. And he knew that it would just click eventually. And it did. And when it did finally click where we had the skills in our hands and the ears, um, then we became really good fast. And we started passing up groups. But that that concept of having two guys, one person running the ensemble, one person pulling someone off and giving them lessons one at a time. I saw that in the young colonials that it reminded me of Marty and, and John.
4: That's so funny. I, I never thought about that happening in DCI. That's, that's, that's an interesting story. I don't think it ever happens, it, but it's not, prob-
7: it yeah, happened but- with Marty. Like, we, we're so smart in DCI. We, we know how to clean. We're going to do this, this, right. and this, and this. But you know what? Never underestimate a one-on-one. You know, if, if I could watch and see Marty play something, he would not have to say a word. I just absorbed so much stuff, and it's going to sink in. I don't know when, but eventually it's going to click. Now You know, I think that's the power and beauty of um, live clinics. And I, I applaud you, Brendan, for taking up the torch and being the president for the USAR, because that's a lot of work. But, you know, we can go on YouTube all day long and watch a million videos. But that's not the same as getting an impression of someone drumming excellently in front of you. And right. just I, I can remember to this day, Rob Carson, you know, drumming with me at a camp. Fred, Fred Sanford taught me at a camp. You know i used to go up to the band back then It was called bands of america i think it's music for all before that it was bands of america uh, but anyway marching bands of america they had this camp in whitewater wisconsin every summer and my high school band director would get a busload of us and we'd drive from thibodeau all the way up to wisconsin and i was instructed by um Fred sanford jim campbell Ward durrett uh yeah different people and that prep rob carson and that impression to this day, I mean, I can vividly remember that, and and I would have never gotten that on YouTube. Right,
5: that's cool. You know, so you uh, reminded me of something that that you had mentioned to me a, a number of years ago now, but um, you had mentioned that that you feel like you're you're better. Um, now than you've ever been um you know at at, at this stage of your life at least you were then before covid right (laughs) Um, but uh so i'm wondering about your 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 own personal practice routine like 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 what what you've learned what sort of wisdom you've learned about the way the way to to practice rehearse and and learn music or or learn the techniques
7: yeah Um, I, I was, and did feel like I was getting better, but this past year, um, in March of 2022, yeah, I became the group leader of the Hellcats and my life got a lot busier. (laughs) So I haven't been able to practice as much or even work out as much as I used to. And I'm I'm trying to find that balance. So I'm struggling, but, um, I'm going to find it and I'm finding it more through delegation. I've got to trust my people and just start delegating more, but I was trying to do everything myself as a leader. So I say all that to say, yes, the older you get, the more efficient you have to be in your practicing. Like you don't have the luxury of all this time to go noodle around a pad and jack around. Like you got to go in with a mission. Like I got 25 minutes. I'm going to learn these four lines and perfect them. So what works for me now is I um, take a chunk of, of a phrase where I can sight-read it perfectly, whatever tempo that is. It might be 60 beats a minute, and then I play that perfectly, and then I just trust the process of click, click, click the metronome. So if I have 25 minutes, or let's say i got an hour, I would just go up like one click at a time, and my goal would be to get today to get from 60 to 85. Now, my eventual goal is 112, let's say whatever. And then, so I just based on how much time I have, that's how many clicks I will do. I don't have a lot of time. I'm going to jump up four clicks in between each rep. And each rep, I'm trying to overdo my dynamics because I know I'm going to lose some of that when I get faster. But when I'm yeah. super slow, and I'm trying to, and then along the way of those repetitions, I'm listening to the music and going, how many different ways. Can I phrase this? And I'm experimenting on the reps, and then I finally find something that I want to say, and I will say that I tend to take liberties conceptualizing music, um, just because that's what I I enjoy doing that. And that's that's my passion so um so when I play tribute to Dr. Berger I'm adding dynamics when I play drum corps parade I'm adding stuff I played a Jim Clark piece number 10 for his book and I really took a lot of liberties I even used like another concert drum <laughs> with a moleskin and I flipped it over none of that was written and I don't know how he feels about that but um <laughs> but I had but I had my reasons and I I, I told them I texted them like that flipped over part was, you know, Bartok Concerto for Orchestra. I heard that dialogue. And Michael Colgrass has six unaccompanied dances. where He has two different lines. Well, the way Jim wrote that, he had like a right hand versus a left hand dialogue. So I voiced that with a concert drum on tenor with a moleskin. And I, I made the anyway, blah, blah, blah. Every, every part that I took a liberty, I had a connection to through something that I wanted to say, like Billy Joe Jones. He had a sextuplet thing with some Swiss triplets. I, I just heard Billy Joe Jones. That spoke to me. And then his whole, the ending of that thing was very, I heard, I heard the roughs a lot crisper and tighter, very orchestrally, like a De La Clouse snare drum piece. So I, I played it on a concert snare, the whole back half of the piece. So I think that, you know, life's so short that you you got can't waste your time on bad music and the music that did you want to play? You have to decide at some point in time, are you just a, a museum curator, just passing the torch of this piece? Or are you going to give something of yourself through the lens of this piece, hopefully respecting the composer and not bastardizing things. But um, that's where I find joy in playing snare drum now is just what can I do to this piece? Um, so that's a long-winded answer i don't even know what the question is. So, I, so i feel uh, i feel it's kind right. of like passionate and and i'm still working it out i feel a little guilty like i don't want to like destroy the music but i also have something to say
5: as a yeah. uh, follow-up to that um so do you find like do you still work on on technique um do you do you break down rudiments would be a good a, a good right. so
7: i really believe and i teach this to my son and all the time like I really believe that slow 60 beat a minute, whatever, to take it up to the tempo. I mm-hmm. think that takes care of all the technique. Like you're already doing it in the piece of music. Sure. So I'm not, I'm not breaking down the technique. I'm not exercising any technique. I'm just playing the music slow enough that I successfully play it. And then if I start to like, hey, I'm starting to lose it a little bit here. Okay, I have to iron that out. So the way you iron something out is you go a little bit slower, you go over the, the wrinkle, and then you go a little bit faster. You keep ironing that out until you can comfortably do that. So I, I use the slow to fast technique, and it's a tedious, slow, boring, disciplined way to learn stuff. But it, it gives me the results, and in the end, it saves me time. And, I, and also, you know what it gives me? A lot of confidence. I trust myself because I've never trained my hands how to play it wrong. My hands don't know how to play it wrong. I've only played it correct from the very first day, just super slow. Anybody can play anything in the world at the slow enough tempo, if you find that tempo. Mm-hmm. Right. That makes it-
2: right. Well, you know, not to burst <clears> the bubble, <throat> but, you know, Jim Clark did tell me what he thought of your interpretation. Oh,
7: boy. <laughs> it was
2: not good, my friend. I'm so- No, I'm, co- I'm completely bullshitting on that.
7: Well, I will say this. I, I saw him at the muster, uh, Westbrook, and I was like, I was afraid to go talk to him because I, I just didn't know. And I, I really admire him. He reminds me so much of Marty Hurley, just yeah. the integrity of what he has to do. And he plays great, too. He's a great player. I think he's at USAR this year. Is he doing the clinic? I yes, he is. All right. So that's that's what I'm looking forward to. Like, yeah, yeah. like that's 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 the one I want to go see, you know.
2: Well he is, he's fabulous and and his knowledge, like what's in his head and and not just about not just about drumming, but about, you know, particularly Connecticut fife and drum and the history and the origins and all that. it's it's remarkable. and you know his his book is fabulous and uh, it's it's worth a read for for everybody who's even remotely interested in
7: in any of this stuff. But yeah, I do I do have a quick Jim Clark story. I do have his book. I've read that thing twice and taken a ton of notes and used it for clinics and stuff. Because <clears throat> it's such a great, great book. But one time I did drive out and, and did a lesson, I took a lesson from him and um I didn't know what it was gonna be like, you know, and this and that. And there's some guy with him. I don't know who this guy is. But at towards the end of the lesson, they go, Hey, read this. And I'm I'm a pretty good reader, I can read. And um and I didn't know who this guy was at first and then so I'm kind of you know and I'm reading Well it was the Clark 2-4 solo and then this guy that was standing there watching me was Paul oh, well I call him Paul Cormier. Cormier I was, I, I yeah. was Louisiana, but he's Paul Cormier. Yeah, and was, he was quiet the whole time, never said boo. And then um, all of a sudden, he's like, well, let me, can I play along with you? And then then um, he plays along with me. And I'm like, my God, this this guy's been hiding all these chops. <laughs> so he was waiting. And then um, and I was, you know, there was a couple of stickings that obviously you have to look at more than once to catch towards the end. Yeah, but he's like, Oh, yeah, you're, you're a really good reader. I've never really had anybody... Be able to read this i'm like well i messed up this this and this and he, i said can we get another run of it so then we started playing it jim clark and paul cormier and myself playing down the two four solo and that's a memory i'll cherish forever that
2: yeah. is a memory right yeah. there.
7: and yeah. it was just so fun and then I, i've grown to respect and love paul cormier and 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 i've learned who he really is you yeah. know in the, in the activity so you guys have such a rich culture and um, i'm always trying to bridge the gap between those cultures with DCI, and the Hellcats, and Louisiana, and music education, too, like, I really think that's the next thing, I've talked to Dave a lot, of, a lot about it, like, there's so many, my colleagues that I judge with, they're like, yeah, I want to start, like, a little fife and drum chord in my high school in Texas, because these high schools in Texas are the real deal, like, they're little colleges, they have steel bands, some of them have Brazilian samba bands, and, and even, like, you know, Brian Mason a while back, you know, I want to start a fife and drum thing in my college. Can you help me out? And I'm like, well, yeah, I can. Like, wait till I retire and I'll come help you out. But, and then I talked to Dave, and we're, you know, I know he's trying, we're trying to do it like a one stop shop where you can buy everything you need. You know, I need these drums. I need these, what's the classic tunes? How do you play them? Can you send out a clinician? It reminds me of back in the day when Ludwig started all their clinics with Frank Arsenal. And, and Ludwig and all those guys were going out and spreading the gospel of Bruda Mill drum corps at the time, and um, but I, I'm excited about to see what Dave's going to do. Loyal and all these colleges that want to start this um, fife and drum corps thing. I know George Willis does it. I'm interested in doing one down in Louisiana where we play Cajun music and we, to fifes. You know that would be kind of cool.
5: That would that would be really cool to see. I, I I would love to love to come down and see that. Well, and, and that's one of the really cool things about fife and drum is that you can you can adapt it to to localized styles. You know, like and and play your music. It's just an, it's just a different instrumentation. That's all. Yeah, I
7: know there's a guy in Louisiana doing it. Moran, I think. Yeah, was.
5: Andrew Moran. Yeah. Yeah. So we've
7: talked a little bit. I was like, hey man, when I when I retire and move back down there, I, I want to come help you guys out. I could easily see me starting a group, and we're coming down the street. Jumbo lie, crawfish pie, like gumbo. Tonight I'm gonna see my shadow meal. Playing some rudiments for that with some Mardi Rap beads hanging off the fife, you know, like hey. it could be a cool thing. And um, we have to be delicate because in the South we have, um, you know, a lot of the, the rebel the Union, I mean, the, the Southern Army. Like we don't want to really be digging all that up, but we well, we have a heritage of fife and drum corps in the South too that we can yeah. somehow, somehow bring. I know there was um the Tigers or Fuchel, Fuchelars or whatever they were, Fuchelers, um group down there during that time period in the Civil War. So I don't know. I, I've got to think about it and see how to present it the right way and and focus on the culture and not not offend anyone, not play any kind of tunes that would, you know, offend. And we've had to do that at West Point, you know, like Bonnie Blue and some of the tunes we've had to right. bring their, their place in history. And what does that mean? You know, what we're, we're trying to say by playing those tunes.
2: Right, right. Yeah, I think I think we've all I think all of us in our respective cores have had to uh, deal with that in the last, you know, several years on on one level level or another. I know I certainly have, you know, but it certainly sounds like you're one of those guys that in retirement, you're going to be working more than ever. I think I could see that writing on the wall. So I'm going to I'm going to have
7: a great time in retirement. I'm so excited about it. Um, i got too many ideas, not enough years left to live. That's what my wife tells me. She's like, you need well, two more times. That's what it's but, all uh, about. It's if I can have the energy and the health. And um, yeah, I just want to do stuff that I want to do for for the right reasons, you know? Yeah.
2: Well, we can't wait to see it, Jeff. And uh, we can't wait to see you at the next event that we all do. Um, and uh, we'd like to thank you for spending time with us tonight and giving us You're such sorry. great insight into your your side of things and your thought process on it all, and uh, this has been a really, really good time. Thank you.
4: He'll be uh, a usard. So- I am going to be a USAR. I'm looking forward to it. Good. And,
2: uh,
7: yeah, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. The time really flew by fast. I feel like we hardly talked about anything. <laughs> well, that's
2: that's always the, you know, it, this is one of those cases where it's like, you know, if we could do this five more times and, you know, not dig up anything we've already talked about (laughs) a second time. So we'll do that um, because there's so much to cover. And, you know, again, we get back to the time, how much time do we have? And, you know, what do we do with it when we have it? So that's the, that's the key to everything, I guess. So
7: thank you. The older you get, you know, you start realizing all you have really is your, your time, your energy, your talents, your resources, and and sharing those is like really fulfilling. And you don't really have that perspective when you're, you know, in your teens and 20s. Yeah. But you get in your 50s, you're like, yeah, I'm going to do this for this reason and I'm going to do it very well. Right. And, um, and and most of it has nothing to do with money or prestige. So, mm-hmm. yeah, none of it actually does. Not for
2: me. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> for sure. Cool, yeah. man. Thank you so much.
7: Yeah, thank you, Jeff. Cool. This was great. Thanks,
5: Thanks guys. You. See you. Great to see you. See you soon.
2: You've liked this podcast and would like to support the Bottom of the Glass? Go to Patreon.com/backslash Bottom of the Glass Podcast to donate, or click on the Patreon link on our Facebook and Instagram pages. And thank you. Program produced by Michael Blancaflor, edited by Brendan Mason, hosted by Brendan Mason, Dave Loyal, and Brian Watkins. Podcast music was created by Michael Blancaflor.
3: Logo was done by Andrew Runners.